Well, good morning, everybody. Construction projects rarely go as planned. Is I-275 always under construction? (laughs) I saw an interview with some of the top engineers on the 275 project, and one of them, his first name, spelled J-E-S-U-S, Jesus. I'm sure he pronounces his name Jesus. But it tickled me for a moment to think that Jesus is in charge of I-275. When will 275 be finished? Only Jesus knows. (laughs) But you can be confident that he who began a good work will bring it to completion in his own time, not in your time. Construction projects require patience. They create angst. They draw complaints. And all of that was true in this ancient construction project that we're studying in the book of Nehemiah. Now, we started the series last week. I want to review last Sunday and make sure we're all on the same page. And this review will take the form of a quiz. Uh, Question number one, what was Nehemiah's role? What was his job in the palace? He was a cupbearer to the king, something like the the head of security, uh, right? What was the king's name? That's right. (laughs) The king's name was Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes. Um, spell art no we won't won't do that question Uh, what nation what empire was the king the king of Persia Persia the Persian empire what kind of rugs are made in Persia Persian rugs that was a freebie Uh, what was it that broke Nehemiah's heart the broken walls and the brokenness of the people of Jerusalem And uh, what did we give you last week to use as a prayer prompt to pray, God, where do you want me to be involved in the brokenness of this world? You took home a little puzzle piece of part of a brick wall to prompt you to pray over your role in the brokenness of God's world. Now, in the pew pockets in front of you here in Northville and on top of the rows, I think, there in Farmington Hills, you will find a little prayer brick card. And uh, if you could help each other out so that everyone has one in their hands today, there's a stack of them in the little pew pockets here in Northville on the seats there. Everyone needs at least one of these prayer cards today. There are also some Sharpie markers in the front pockets, and you'll need to share those this morning as well. These are prayer cards uh, that I'd like back from you today, but these are not prayer requests the way we church people often think of prayer requests. These are commitments to God made in prayer. And so these kind of prayers start with words like this. They might start with, I will do this. I confess so-and-so. Use me too. Give me the strength too. These are prayerful commitments. And prayers of commitments and prayers of confession play a prominent role in the book of Nehemiah. You can complete a prayer brick right now, or you can wait, and I'm going to give you some ideas on prayer commitments you might make uh, later as I go throughout this talk. On your way out, you will drop those prayer cards in baskets at the doors as you leave. And during the week, our team is going to build a wall up here on the platform using those prayer cards. And it will be a visual reminder to us that all of our commitments add up to something great. It will be a visual metaphor that the world has changed brick by brick, commitment by commitment, person by person. And I hope to get one prayer brick back from each of you today. It's going to take everybody to build this wall. 
Now, during the week, you can stop by and actually fill out additional prayer cards. We actually already got 45 that were filled out by middle school and high school students earlier this week to start our wall. And we'll give you a chance in the subsequent Sundays to fill out cards as well. Today, we're looking at Nehemiah chapter 2, and we're going to see that Nehemiah is a great leader. Some great leaders are spiritual leaders. Some leaders are practical leaders. Nehemiah is both. In chapter 1, we saw the spiritual side of Nehemiah's leadership where he confesses sin and he weeps and he prays. And today in chapter 2, we see the practical side of his leadership as he gets strategic. The man of tears now becomes a careful strategist. Now, how much time do you think has passed between chapter 1 and chapter 2? How much time has passed between Nehemiah's tears and his action? Well, chapter 1 says that it happened in the month of Kislev, and chapter 2, the text says it happened in the month of Nisan. So there you go. It's about four months. Four months have passed from the weeping of Nehemiah to him actually seeming to do something about it by approaching the king. And in chapter 2, Nehemiah does four things. We're going to look at these in turn. He takes a risk. He gathers research. He builds a team and he gets to work. It's almost too simple to even talk about, but it's a great lesson in leadership. He takes a risk, he gathers research, he builds a team, and he gets to work. Nehemiah is a master of timing and communication and strategy. So first we're gonna see he takes a risk. He's going to approach the king, and he waits for his precise right moment. And verse one of chapter two says this, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, for the king, now you see what's going on, Nehemiah's waiting for his right opportunity to approach the king, and he senses this could be the right time, because wine's being brought to the king, maybe the king's in a good mood, maybe he'll be more open, verse 2 says this, the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? Now why was Nehemiah's face so sad? Again, he was broken over the brokenness of Jerusalem. Verse 3. Nehemiah says, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Now, notice Nehemiah does not mention anything about Judah or Jerusalem or anything about the religion of Israel. Instead, he frames the problem in terms that a Persian king could relate to. And King Artaxerxes could likely relate to the desecration of ancestral burial grounds. Now, Nehemiah is taking a big risk here. If the king senses any disloyalty in his cupbearer, game over. If the king senses that the cupbearer is critiquing his foreign policy, game over. But it must have gone pretty well because the next line says this. The king said to me, what is it you want? Now, this is the question Nehemiah was hoping the king would ask. Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. Now, what a great reality here. I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. Imagine living in that reality. I prayed to the God of heaven, and then I answered my spouse. I prayed to the God of heaven, and then I answered my boss. I prayed to the God of heaven, and then I answered that email. Right? Imagine living in that reality where you're in constant communication with God. And the story goes on here, verse 5 and following. Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. 
if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. So Nehemiah asked the king for a leave of absence from his role as the chief bodyguard of the palace. And they set a time. Now it doesn't say what time was set, but we know that Nehemiah was in Jerusalem for 12 years. That's an extended leave of absence. And the king grants the leave of absence. And then Nehemiah senses an opportunity and decides he's going to ask for some more. So he asks for letters of safe passage to get to his destination. And then he asks for lumber to rebuild the gates of Jerusalem. If you give a mouse a cookie, (laughs) Nehemiah is swinging for the fence. He's making bold asks of the king. Now Nehemiah had to be afraid, but his problem given to him by God, was bigger than his fear of the king. His problem was bigger than his fear. And incredibly, the king said yes to every request. Either the king had had a great amount of wine, or, as Nehemiah correctly surmises, the gracious hand of God was upon him. That's what Nehemiah says. The gracious hand of God was upon me. He's living in this kingdom reality, Nehemiah and God working together. He takes a risk, and then secondly, he gathers research. He gathers research. Now, this is the text that was read earlier today. Let's look at the first part again. Here's how he gathers the research. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate, and I won't read the rest of it, it was read earlier, but Nehemiah goes out by night on a horse and inspects the wall. He doesn't want a lot of other people with him. He doesn't want to be uh, led a certain direction. He doesn't want people to know his plans ahead of time. He goes out to make the inspection on his own. And again, we see Nehemiah as a careful strategist with a shrewd sense of timing. He takes a risk, he gathers research, and then next he builds a team. Now he's ready to call people together and build his team. And he gives this inspiring speech to people. Throughout Nehemiah, there are these places where Nehemiah gives inspiring speech. And this is a paraphrase of what Nehemiah said. But imagine Nehemiah gathering all the people together after he's inspected the wall. And he says, people of God, we can rebuild. You think it's impossible, but I'm here to tell you it is not. It is the will of God. The condition of these walls is unacceptable. Our people are vulnerable from attack on every side. Thieves come in and take what they want. And worse than that, the name of our God is being mocked and maligned. This is not just about rebuilding a wall. This is about rebuilding God's reputation and extending his name and his glory. The task is enormous. The obstacles are great. The risk is high, but I am not intimidated, says Nehemiah. I fear God more than I fear any person. I fear God more than I fear any of you. Were I to have to do this alone, rock by rock, it shall be done for his glory. But God wants us to do this together. God wants you to be all in. God wants to accomplish great things through us. The task is hard. I would not say otherwise. 
But the same God who called creation into being, the same God who rescued us from slavery in Egypt is with us now. All you have to do is say yes. Who's in? And after this speech, this is what the response was of the people. They replied four words. What were those four words? Let us start rebuilding. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. They begin the rebuilding work. And so, last step in the phrase, they get to work. They get to work. And chapter 3 records the names of all the people who labored on the wall. And uh, it wasn't just the construction workers and masons. It was everybody. There's a goldsmith mentioned. There's a perfume maker mentioned. Perfume maker out there laboring on the wall and smelling great while he's doing it. One guy says he's working with his daughters. And we're not told whether these are adult daughters or children daughters, but men and women labored on the wall. The high priest is out there with all his priestly helpers, district leaders, merchants, laborers. Everybody was in. Well, not quite everybody. Verse 5 says, The nobles of Tekoa would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. In other words, the nobles, the highest-ranking citizens, would not submit to the leadership of Nehemiah and his associates. Now, the people of Tekoa, the rank-and-file people, they built two sections of the wall, but they did so without any help or assistance or direction from the nobles. Mark Roberts writes this. He says, This should be no surprise that some persons of power and status in Judah failed to support Nehemiah. In our offices, schools, and often in our churches, we too encounter nobles who will not submit to leadership. So even Nehemiah, one of the great leaders of all time, was unable to secure 100% participation. But he got almost everybody, and almost everybody kicked in the power of everybody. Nehemiah 4, 6 says, and the people worked with all their hearts. It became contagious. Nehemiah had them on mission and he had them inspired. And beyond that, Nehemiah has the project carefully organized. He has project champions for sections of the wall. Then he assigns sections of the wall to people according to where their homes were, that they would rebuild the section of the wall closest to their homes. Now, why did he do that? You think if you're working on the section of wall closest to your house or your business, that you might take special interest in that part of the wall? That you might have some quality control concerns? Uh, Nehemiah is a fantastic strategist here. Nehemiah is going to align the self-interest of the people with this great construction endeavor that's going on. And he's got the thing in high gear, and he's off to a fantastic start, and the people labor with all their hearts. Now, next week, we're going to look at the obstacles that would come their way. But in the time that remains, I'd like to make some Nehemiah applications to our church and to our community. As our leaders have assessed how things are going in our church and in the American church at large, we have identified at least four places where the wall is broken. And the first place the wall is broken that we've identified is the reputation and therefore the witness of the American church. Have you sensed that wall crumbling? My parents' generation, my parents, even though they spent most of their lives apart from the church, had a high respect for the church. They believed the church made a difference in the world. They knew the church uh, served the poor. The church taught good morals and values for children. My parents did not understand the invisible spiritual realities of the church, but the visible parts of the church they respected. 
they believe the church is good for human society. I don't think we can count on that anymore. I've seen the slide in my own lifetime from Americans generally believing the church is good for human society to, the church, to, to, to people believing that the church is neutral for human society to now some groups believing that the church is harmful to society. Now, if you're a church person like I am, you are likely to feel a bit defensive. The church, for me, imperfect as it was, has always been a great source of stability and kindness to me. And I I want people to know the good that our church and the church has done uh, to this world. Global poverty rates, global hunger rates have plummeted in our world over the last hundred years. And who do you think's been digging all those wells? Who do you think's been starting those food distribution programs? It has largely been people of faith in Jesus Christ. Don't tell me the church doesn't make a difference in the world. There might be a need to correct some misinformation in the months and years to come to remind people that Christian history is more than just the medieval crusades, but includes radical acts of selfless love that have impacted every sector of human society. But we need not only to correct, this is a time to confess some things. Can we admit that part of the reason the reputation of the church has damaged is because we church people have not lived and loved like Jesus? Can we admit that the reputation is damaged in part because we damaged it? This is a time to own up to our own role and to confess our sins to each other and to a watching world. We need to correct some things, maybe, confess some things, and then we need to commit to doing better. We need to double down on doing the things Jesus taught and modeled, to be loving neighbors and faithful employees and active community members. We can rebuild the reputation of the church by how we church people live and love. I I love, love, love the little He Gets Us television ads that are designed to help Americans face negative stereotypes about the church. But we can't just leave it to television ads. This is everybody time. So you might want to write on your prayer bricks this morning, help me to show my faith by how I live. Or I will represent you well in my high school or in my neighborhood. Or I confess that my own heart has grown judgmental and cold. You can write that on your prayer books right now or hold off. And again, the prayer bricks, please write on the side that looks like a brick. They're cut up wallpaper and we peel and stick them. And the last service, a lot of people wrote on the, on the white side. And it's gonna, we're going to build our wall anyway, but right on the right side of the brick. And you can write more than one commitment on your card, or you can use multiple cards. That's okay. Uh, the people replied in Nehemiah 2.18 with four words after Nehemiah gave his speech. Do you remember what those four words were? Let us start rebuilding. The people replied. The people replied. Let us start rebuilding. A second place the wall is broken is the connection of people. The connection of people. Did you see that the Surgeon General uh, has a report now that says that loneliness is a health epidemic in the United States? The Surgeon General. That's the office that in my childhood put the warnings on cigarette packages. And when I first saw this report about loneliness, I wanted to say, stay in your lane, Surgeon General. You've got the medical and biological, but leave the emotional and social and spiritual to those of us in the social sectors. 
But the Surgeon General's report says that loneliness has been associated with coronary heart disease, high blood pressure, stroke, dementia, dementia, depression, and anxiety, and is every bit as detrimental to human health as tobacco. He was interviewed, uh, Surgeon General, and he said, loneliness is far more than just a bad feeling. It harms both individual and societal health. The report of the Surgeon General's office is called Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation. Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation, which describes social connection as a fundamental human need as essential to survival as food, water, and shelter. Loneliness is an epidemic, and the church can do something about this. We've got people. We've got the means for connection. Our staff have already declared this program year to be the year of connection. And we are really trying to make extra effort to be sure that everyone has a connection to meaningful community. Now the data shows that most at risk are the oldest Americans and the youngest American adults. This is no real surprise. Most at risk are the oldest American adults and the youngest American adults. Adults, sometimes people in the middle are hoping for a little more alone time. But digging the data a little more carefully, and it's not quite this simple. Loneliness is not related to proximity of people. In other words, you can be married and be lonely. You can be in a small group and be lonely. You can be in a church and be lonely. And loneliness in a crowd is the loneliest lonely of all. Conversely, you can spend a lot of time alone and not be lonely. So the data shows loneliness is far more nuanced than would appear at first glance. So you might want to write on your prayer brick, I will check in with my friends. I will meet somebody new. I will invite somebody into my group. Everybody get some ideas, things you can write on that prayer brick in this category? And the people replied, let us start rebuilding. Let us start rebuilding. Another place where the wall is broken is the hope of the next generation. A lot of studies have been done on Generation Z. That's roughly 15, age 15 to age 25. But the Barna organization recently did a a mammoth report, and the new research uh, shows that U.S. teens in particular experience higher levels of anxiety, uncertainty, and stress than do their global peers. They also experience lower levels of confidence, security, and a sense of being believed in or cared about by those around them. Trends in the data also show that U.S. teens' emotional health tends to lessen as they grow older. This is not a teen phase you outgrow. Emotional health tends to lessen as these teenagers get older. And a lot of research has had some similar findings. I might have called this generation the anxious generation, as some have. Or maybe the unhurried generation, because they tend to take more time to grow up. But the Barna organization chose another term to summarize this generation. They call it the open generation. The open generation. This generation's opened all kinds of things. That's the, that's the concern, and that's also the confidence I want to tell you a story about my own bad parenting, not to be replicated, but during the pandemic, our church sponsored some online courses for parents, and I attended, and I went to the one for uh, teenagers because my daughter was 15 years old at the time. 
And uh, in the seminar that I went to, the breakout session for teenagers, they said that this generation is the most sexually fluid generation ever to come along. They're the most anxious generation, uh, the most depressed generation. There were some areas of hope, but I, 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 I clung to, to those stark uh, images. And here was the parenting mistake. Not, not, this is not an example to be followed. After the seminar, I walked right out where my daughter was in the living room with a friend from her high school. And I said, I just finished this seminar. And they said that your generation is the most sexually fluid generation, the most anxious generation. And my daughter's friend Ava uh, turned and looked at me and said, that's right. And we're also the most accepting generation. And that's where I knew I'd blown it. And I tried to correct afterwards by saying, that's right, Ava, your generation is the best generation ever, and that's why you're going to change the world. I was, I was back paddling, uh, <laughs> trying to get out of that situation. They're, they're, this is an accepting generation. The Barner Report, this, this is directly from the Barner Report. As we have explored the profile that emerges from the aggregate data, we have used words like engaged, malleable, curious, authentic, inclusive, and collaborative. And this next line from the report is very important. It says, we see that teens are open to Jesus, the Bible, and justice. Further, their commitment to these three things are interwoven and increased together. Teens are open to Jesus, the Bible, and justice. And these three commitments are interwoven together and rise together. I'm suggesting that the next generation become the urgent priority of every one of us. This is not a time for generational bashing, which I can be prone to do. It's not a time for generational bashing, but for generational bolstering. We need to cheer and celebrate and listen to the next generation. So you might write on your card this morning, God, give me a love for kids. God, help me to smile more. God, give me bravery to cross generational lines and say hello to a teenager because they terrify me. (laughs) Write, I will pray daily for high school kids. Or write, I will volunteer in children's ministry. Let, let, let me see some prayer cards being written today. Everybody get an idea of what you could write on your prayer card this morning, on the brick side of the prayer card this morning? And the last area we'll talk about today, another wall that's broken, is the unity of Christians. The unity of Christians has become more broken in recent years. The divide between Christians has grown in recent years. Now, Christians have been divided before, In 2,000 years, Christians have navigated many divides. However, these previous divides have all been doctrinal, right? We have fought over what really happens at the Lord's Supper and how much water should be used at baptism and who should speak in tongues and what role women should play in the church and on and on and on and on. Most of our divides have been doctrinal. Today's divide is political, We've always said that we are one in Jesus. Jesus is the great unifier. But what we have found in recent years is that politics is a greater unifier than is Jesus. That's not a theological statement. That's a statement about the fallen human condition. Maybe you've read that Americans are moving to like-minded communities with a mobile and transient workforce. People are relocating to counties where people have the same political leanings. This could radically change the political landscape of America. People are also changing churches to, uh, to, to churches that share a common, common political viewpoint. 
Americans are just more comfortable being around people with similar political views. Now in the first century, church members couldn't relocate to another part of the country and they couldn't just switch churches. There was only one church. They had to work it out. And the New Testament records some of the bumps they encountered. It wasn't perfect. Some of the bumps they encountered when people of different ethnicities, people of different political parties, different viewpoints entered the church. But the early church somehow was able to find their unity in Jesus Christ. In fact, their unity became part of their witness. People said if those very different people can love each other, there must be something supernatural at play. The Apostle Paul declared there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither is there male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And I believe that Ward Church has a shot of achieving what the early church achieved. I think we could be a church where Democrats and Republicans are united in Jesus and where political activists in both parties work for the needed renewal within their own party. And I cast this vision knowing that not all of you even want this. But I really believe that there is a higher level Christian unity that is beautiful and attractive and possible. So you might write in your prayer bricks, God, make me a peacemaker. God, help me to love the people that I think are my enemies. God, I resolve to love you more than my own opinions, strong as they may be. Has everyone found something they can write down? You can write more than one commitment on our prayer card or use multiple prayer cards. The unity of Christians is crumbling and needs to be shored up. So places where the wall is broken, four areas we've identified today, the reputation, therefore, the witness of the American church, the isolation, the connection of people, the hope of the next generation, and the unity of Christians. And we can't leave this for other people to fix. This is everybody time. Right? The people replied, let us start rebuilding. In the book of Nehemiah, curiously, the people did not complain about the broken walls. I, I don't think they even noticed. I think after a while brokenness just starts to look normal. Please stand to your feet. I want to give you my best Nehemiah speech. Our walls are broken. The world knows it. The condition of these walls is unacceptable. It's not just our reputation at stake, friends. This is the reputation of the one whose name we bear. The task is enormous, the obstacles are great, the risk is high, but I am not intimidated. I fear God more than I fear any person, more than I fear any of you. God's calling us to do this. God wants us to do this together. God wants us to be all in. The task is hard, I would not say otherwise. But the same God who called creation into being, the same God who redeemed us from our own sin is with us now. All we need to do is to work with him. And the people replied, let us start rebuilding. Will you pray with me now? God of grace, by your strength and in your name, 
let us start rebuilding. Let us love and serve one another and love and serve our community to such a degree that your people become known by love and become a source of hope and light. We pray for the brokenness in us and for the brokenness in our world and pray that you would work in us and through us for your glory. This we pray in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.